Plowing Municipally. This week, snowplows got their names and are one step closer to being a real boy. Plus, the city may get a bunch of new pilot dog parks, and the Valley Line has more cracks. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 205. It's a new year, new us. We're over that 200 hill and we're into 2023. And Mac, are you excited to be back on the mics? Well, you know, I love talking to you every week, Troy. It's a little bit of a habit for me now. I think it's a habit for listeners. But if I'm being perfectly honest, council didn't do a whole lot of too many interesting things. I I have other things I could do, you know? (laughs) How about you? I think council well deserves the break after the slog they put themselves and us through during budget at the end of last year. Yeah, like you said, we scheduled this recording uh, for the 19th to release on the Friday, expecting, you know, council's first week back, they'd be refreshed and full of vigor and ready to make some news. They didn't. They didn't do any of that. I mean, Michael Jans was back to his usual tricks, right? Trying to dominate the news headlines. But for the most part, they were wise and started the year with a light week. Just like we start every episode a little bit lightly with the rapid fire. The city of Edmonton has released its list of 15 snowplow names, ranging from Darth Blader to Amersleet Snowhee. As part of the announcement, they explained that in order to summon a snowplow, one must recite its name three times. That's why no one has seen a snowplow in their neighborhood before now. A string of thefts at many collectible stores in Edmonton, often targeting Pokemon cards, has left owners struggling. However, in the aftermath, local weeb reporters have noticed some anime parallels. At least with respect to the thieves, the EPS is a lot like Ash Ketchum, who recently retired from his 25-year-long slog, which saw him coming nowhere close to catching them all. The government of Alberta has opened consultation on redesigning the legislature grounds and choosing a new water feature. When asked what she thought of the current grounds, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith was nonplussed, saying, quote, The NDP likes to throw expensive novelties around like that green living wall inside the federal building that we ripped out. But when I saw all the green living trees on the legislature grounds, well, that's just textbook NDP overspending. Asphalt is sovereignty. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. They offer internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from, which I'm not sure if you noticed, uh, dear listener, but electricity is mighty expensive right now. Park Power's got low overhead, though, which in turn allows them to offer low competitive rates. You can reach out for no obligations comparison by emailing estimates at parkpower.ca. And if you decide to switch, it's easy. It's really just to change your billing and you can feel good knowing you are helping to give back to our communities with your local utilities bill. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. Well, Troy, congratulations. (laughs) You are the grand champion of the Name a Plow contest. My submission, Amersleet Snowhee, didn't have a W in Snowhee, but the city of Edmonton editorialized a little bit and added that W for some clarity in the pun. Gotcha. Well, now I don't know what you're going to do with all your fame and glory, Troy, but I saw lots of people were really excited about this uh, this week. Like, I think it's a bit of a slow week and it's kind of fun and people can share it. But I just found myself thinking back to when we spoke about this on our previous episode. And I, you've really sold me and convinced me that there's really only two or three interesting names on here, the local ones, Amersleet Snowhee, Connor McBlade, it like the, every, every city is going to have a Mr. Plow and a Plowy McPlow face. And I just can't get as excited about those. I heard a lot of accolades for control salt delete, which yeah. 
Yeah, it's clever for sure. But it was also clever when Hamilton did it in their snowplow contest. And I think Bristol in the UK did it in their snowplow contest. Basically everywhere that does a snowplow contest gets this gamut of puns on movie stars or pop culture. Yeah. I really think where this contest shines is the local names. And we unfortunately really didn't get that many of them. Yeah, they had more than 2,100 entries, it said, which is kind of incredible. Uh, so they were only planning to have 10 winners, and now they ended up with with 15. Uh, do you get anything, Troy, aside from bragging rights? Well, so the city of Edmonton has announced that they are going to be reaching out to the winners. Mm-hmm. As of yet, I have not been reached out to. So I know I submitted Amersleet Snowy first. I know that I fought to have it reinstated when the city initially removed it. But a part of me wonders if they have reached out to one of the copycats that submitted it and declared them the winner. In which case, if they get a free Rex Ender Pass, <laughs> well, <laughs> hell hath no fury like a podcaster scorned Mac. No doubt. Well, it could be worse, I guess. You could have been one of the, what, 2,050 people that submitted Plowy McPlowface? <laughs> you know, I think we really do, just as a culture, need to put a moratorium on the Mick face joke yeah uh, Bodie McBoface was funny yes um then that was the first and last time it was funny agreed it was interesting that the snowplow news got such wide attention on the same week that uh every Edmontonian sort of collectively noticed hey my residential streets in front of my house look like trash and I can't get around yeah the city found itself having to defend its snow clearing practices uh, this week, and Mark Beer, who's the city's director of infrastructure operations, basically said, don't worry, Edmontonians, we hear you. Uh, we've got a little bit of a warm spell going on right now. It's beautiful out there today. And he said when temperatures drop, then they'll get back into grooming residential neighborhoods. Although in this article that we're going to put in the show notes, it notes that Strathcona County has already been clearing its residential streets, for example. Yeah, the idea that a freeze-thaw cycle is some sort of new arcane magic that Edmontonians are unable to cope with, once again, causes me to scratch my head. And it seems, once again, it's another year where the basics of snowplowing seem to elude Edmonton. And I think it's particularly galling in that this budget cycle we didn't fund the full gamut of snow clearing that uh, some councillors indicated they wanted to increase our service standard. But we did fund extra money for this year to make this year achieve all of our snow clearing dreams. And yet, Mac, I'm finding this dream to be more of a nightmare. Interesting, too, that he says that the reason they haven't cleared residential roads yet is not related to a lack of resources. So even though we didn't fund the full big package, they should have enough resources to be doing this, uh, which begs the question why they haven't been yet. Snow clearing, of course, is always huge news in Edmonton. But I would say the largest story of the past week coming completely out of left field was last Friday when CBC announced that veteran CBC journalist Janice Johnston had passed away due to cancer at only just over 60. And that was news that came completely out of left field and pretty well dominated the local Edmonton news scene for a couple days as people recounted memories of quite an influential reporter. Yeah, just an outpouring of support. I heard about this like everybody else on Twitter late on Friday afternoon, and it was shocking news. Um, Janice was, of course, a crime and courts beat reporter for a really long time. She was in the business for more than three decades. 
and um, you know, lots of uh, fellow journalists in the city, across the city, and, and elsewhere in Canada who had the opportunity to work with her, you know, recounted how dedicated she was, how influential she was, how she mentored young reporters, and and really had an impact. I am, you know, I only got to speak to her a handful of times, but I did actually DM with her quite frequently, and uh, she was a reader of my Media Monday blog series that I used to write on my personal blog, and she would often reach out to me and say. Usually, you know, some constructive criticism, like, hey, maybe you didn't give enough credit to that journalist over there, or hey, did you know about this person? They're doing really amazing work. She was really looking out not just for herself or her her uh, employer, but journalists across the city. And she really was, you know, passionate about that. And I really appreciated, you know, her engagement on that. You know, as other people who had the chance to work with her have said, she was a, a special journalist in Edmonton. So really sad news to see. And, you know, thoughts are with everybody who got to work with her, including Scott and uh, uh, her family, who was on our podcast a couple of years ago. Uh, can't imagine what he's going through right now. I'm sure, in fact, I know she will be missed. The outpouring of support is very clear. But even just from a regular Edmontonian's standpoint, who didn't really know, Janice Johnston didn't have the pleasure to work with her like many journalists in the city did, we will all be missing her simply because she was big driving force in the city of Edmonton, especially for accountability and openness in the justice system. Yeah, I think you're right, Troy, that she had a a real impact on that accountability, journalism and transparency. And I I guess what her impact will live on through the the younger journalists that she had the opportunity to mentor and that she provided valuable, you know, training and experience to. And so it's up to all of them to carry the torch forward. There's no easy way to transition off of this. So this is just a hard transition cut point. This week, Michael Jans, like you said, returned from council break by making a lot of noise, as he's wont to do. And he was making noise once again this week about the lobbyist registry. But this, of course, comes with the context that Executive Committee of City Council debated a sole source contract for the Qualico Pedway. This is the pedway that would lead to station lands from Churchill LRT Station, the 30-ish million dollar pedway that council had approved after much acrimony just a year and a half previously. Executive Committee gave that pedway the nod, but not without some consternation. A year ago, of course, you'll recall that Councillor Stevenson brought forward a motion to cancel this, to not fund it at all, to take it out of the CRL, which um, the previous council had made an exemption for, and and that failed. And so this is going ahead. It's $26.5 million for this 103A Avenue Pedway. And and the contract here is being awarded to LEDCOR. And the rationale for this, it's a sole source contract, and it's way over the amount of money that the city needs to sign without a you know competitive bidding process. So they have to get direct approval. Which is 500000 right? That's the number? A million now, actually. Million. Yeah, because right. council had re- raised it not too long ago. So it does need full council approval. So executive committee kind of endorsed it, but it will go to a full city council next week for a final vote. And the rationale here is that LEDCOR is already engaged on the Station Lands project, and so it makes sense for them to do the construction on this as well. It will save you know time and reduce risk and, and all of those things. I don't actually know whether or not that's a good thing or not. I don't have an opinion about whether or not LEDCOR is the right organization to receive this contract. I agree with Michael Jans that a lobbyist registry for members of council and high-ranking bureaucrats would be a good thing, but I don't know that they're connected. I don't think this contract is the result of you know, intense lobbying by somebody that has has led to this. Now, I suppose if we had a lobbyist registry, that might be a little bit more clear. And our ethics advisor has advised that council create this. So, 
you know, it does seem like something that could happen. Former Mayor Don Iveson had his own lobbyist registry for a little while. But I think Jans is being savvy here and using this executive committee report to bring this lobby registry back into the limelight. Many have said, well, you can just start your own lobbyist registry. Like you said, Don Iveson did have a lobby registry. But the problem here is not that council is necessarily being lobbied. This sole source contract is being brought forward by administration. If there was some lobbying involved in it, it would have been lobbying of administrators with the city, which is a little bit more complex because, you know, if you're at a business meeting and you talk to someone from LEDCOR, is that lobbying? It's really hard to say that someone just doing their jobs and interacting in a hallway is lobbying. I think it's going to be much, much harder to draw those one-to-one comparisons. But like you, I'm not really sure that this is a bad thing. I think the city makes really compelling points that having one contractor on site overseeing the whole project can lead to much better results. I think we've seen the most catastrophic results of piecemeal contracts with the Metro line, where the signaling system was split out of the contract, wasn't overseen by the same general project management, and lo and behold, the train didn't open forever. With all that said, I think that skips over the fundamental question, which Ann Stevenson tried to raise a year ago. Do we need this pedway at all? I think it's important to look back at the context of how this pedway started. There was once, I believe it was called the U of A Galleria project, but there was going to be an entire U of A campus, an arts-focused performance space. There's huge, big glass architecture renderings. This area of station lands was supposed to be housing. It was supposed to be a new U of A campus. It was supposed to be a performing arts center. And if you have something like that, it certainly makes sense to have pedway access to an LRT from there. That's basically a no-brainer. But as we know, the gallery project, the new U of A campus, all of that got slashed and was determined to be financially unfeasible, and the U of A board of directors killed it. And what we're left with is basically a private housing project that is now getting a $30 million private pedway. It's a public pedway, but it's let's be real, it's a housing project, it's a private pedway, to the train. And I just don't see the value to the city for funding this. I'm not sure if it was just the U of A board that kiboshed the Galleria project. I mean, it would have had to be a catalyst project in the downtown CRL, and they struggled to get anybody to agree that given that you know we had just approved and built you know ICE District right next door, that we needed another big catalyst project there. And, and so it kind of fell off the list of, uh, of potential things for, for the downtown CRL. You're right, it's mostly housing now. It is uh, essentially uh, public infrastructure to a private development. And I, I think, as, as I mentioned previously on this podcast, I'm also concerned about the fact that it's, of course, oriented toward Churchill LRT station and toward the downtown. That's a good thing for people who are going to live there, who want to get to transit, but it's a bad thing for addressing the challenges of uh, the lands just immediately north. And Chinatown has been in the news an awful lot this last year for lots of different reasons. And, And one of the challenges it faces is this really difficult urban planning disconnect between the downtown and the ICE district and other places. There could have been an opportunity to not fund a $30 million pedway and instead use some of the money to build public infrastructure in other directions or build a less expensive pedway and also do something to the north. But, you know, missed opportunities. And as we 
as we noted, council already agreed last January to uh, continue funding this as uh, as a downtown CRL project. So it seems like it's going forward. And now the question is just, should it be sole source or not? I'll add a minor clarification. We've been saying about $30 million. The Pedway costs $26.4 million. It's about $30 million. Don't get in my DMs, guys. Well, you know what? There's going to be other associated costs, right? I think about 30 is an accurate thing to say, probably. Like you said, the discussion now is, will this be sole sourced or not? I can't see any reason why council wouldn't approve the sole source. We heard Andrew Knack talk about this in committee, basically asking the question of like, well, if LeadCore is truly the best for this, why couldn't we just open up procurement and then select LeadCore as the choice? And we heard the city managers talk about, well, you know, there's a risk that if we opened up procurement, we might not select LeadCore based on our procurement criteria. To which I would say, if you have criteria that selects the best contractor and you can't use that criteria to select who you think is the best contractor, something something's amiss with that. <laughs> or if or if the problem is that the criteria would select someone else, but the reasoning why LeadCore is for the the cost savings and risk savings of like, can't they change the criteria to make that a a factor, I guess that would make it unfair, but it just seems like they're in control of this, whether they go ahead with the sole source or not. It's a little bit of a baffling bureaucratic snafu, and maybe it's only this big because it's been such a slow news week. And it's a $26.4 million pedway. People people love to complain about pedways, whether you're for or against them. Another thing people love to complain about is dog parks. And this week, committee endorsed a plan to set up 30 temporary pop-up off-leash dog parks in the city of Edmonton. And this is this is some pilot buzzword bingo. But <laughs> essentially, the plan is, hey, community leagues, little neighborhood organizations, why don't you just install some dog parks around? And that'll be great. So there's about 50 current spaces where dogs are allowed to run off-leash. So we'll end up with another about 30. And it's going to cost about $300,000 over six months. These will be in pop-up parks kind of in the west and south. There's a few in the north. They've mentioned some other locations like Meadowlark and Maple Ridge. And, you know, these locations will ultimately be decided upon with consultation with communities sometime this um, this spring before they make all of these um, pop-up places available. That's what's happening. What do you think about this, Troy? Well, you said that there were 50 existing off-leash spaces. And Mac, I've uh, met Edmontonian dog owners. 100% of the city of Edmonton is an off-leash dog park, Mac. (laughs) Yes, I think that's probably true. These are the official ones, I would imagine. (laughs) It also, it also just quickly, it has a target that, I didn't know this, but apparently they have a target that you can be within 20 minutes walking distance of an off-leash area. And 83% of neighborhoods apparently meet that already. Yeah, I mean, my neighborhood of Hazeldean um, has within walking distance of a few blocks, at least a couple off-leash dog parks. I'm always surprised, but of course, off-leash dog parks is not necessarily what conjures in the imagination, especially people who grew up in suburbs. Mm-hmm. I, of course, grew up in Sherwood Park, and an off-leash dog park is driving out of the county to this huge fenced field that, uh, you know, the dog can run and circle the entire earth and come back and meet you on the other side. That's not what an off-leash dog park is in Edmonton. In mine, um, there's the Hazeldean Greenway, which is just a completely unfenced bike path in the middle of the neighborhood. But there's a sign that says it's off-leash. Is that really structured mm-hmm. amenities? I know we've heard complaints from residents that, well, if an off-leash dog park isn't fenced, is it really an off-leash dog park? 
And of course, the city through this is also hoping to address some of those shortcomings. Yeah, the one just down from my house here. Actually, we have two now because there's one over in Ice District as well by the casino. Uh, But the one over here in Alex Dakota Park, fully fenced and enclosed. It's got more than enough garbage cans. I think if you stand in the right spot, I'm not joking, you can spot 20 garbage cans around that park. Um, So they have all the amenities that the the projects in this pilot will have, temporary fencing, garbage cans. And if, you know, the city actually uses this as a pilot to say, you know, track analytics, which ones are used, and then takes the next step and turns some of those into permanent ones, you know, that could be a positive thing. But even with the existing permanent ones that we have, like the one over here, you know, one of the big challenges we always see is that, you know, in the summer, they dog owners want to have water for the dogs. And the, the design of the off-leash park so that there's no access to water, even though across the fence, there is water running for both the fountain and the community garden that is there. Um, so it seems like they could um, maybe address some of, uh, of the other concerns if they go the next step and make these permanent. Another thing, of course, would be lack of washrooms, which I'm always talking about. Yeah, I tend to actually agree with some of Councillor Jans's comments on this this week. He said that in terms of bang for buck, off-leash dog parks, they're places that dog owners will visit sometimes multiple times a day, way more than rec centers. And we just funded hundreds of millions of dollars for Lewis Farms Rec Center that will get substantially less usage than a dog park, which we can build, what, 30 for $150,000. So there's definitely a bang for buck argument there. There's a huge like community aspect. You know, if you're at the dog park, you have an inbuilt socialization network in the same way that other community bases that force people together have. So I see the value of it, but I I come back to the final point that is just like, don't get dogs, get cats instead. (laughs) I'm ideologically opposed to the necessity of dog parks just because, nah, get some cats. (laughs) Well, we can agree to disagree on that. Well, that signals to me that it's time to move on from this topic. And why not move on to something that never ends? That's discovering new cracks in the Valley Line LRT. As a recap, uh, over the break, TransEd had finished all the repairs on the cracked piers, you know, this was close to 66% of all of the con- elevated concrete piers. They said, we've finished this repair. Looks ugly, but they're going to work on the aesthetics with the city, allegedly. Mm-hmm. And after doing that, what did they find, Mac? More cracks. <laughs> <laughs> Not in the pillars this time. These ones are in the concrete at the Davies Transit Station. So this is one of the, or maybe the only raised transit station along the lines, an elevated station. And these cracks are in what they call non-structural concrete. And let's say they're unrelated to all of those previously uh, discussed cracks that were in the pillars. So these cracks, they say, may have developed as a result of water and subsequent freeze-thaw. This is like the go-to excuse for any sort of problem in our city, I guess. Uh, And they plan to seal them. So evidently, this is not a huge concern. And yet, we still don't know when the LRT line is going to open. Trains are now testing on the entirety of the line. We've seen trains downtown and over some of the bridges and piers. So an optimist might say that uh, this year the train will open. I would not uh, because I do not fall in that category. And once again, as soon as we have trains running and testing, we find more cracks. Even if these cracks turn out not to be structural, as they say, even if these cracks are not a problem and they're just a cosmetic thing, The fact that everyone had the same reaction to the discovery of new cracks, which was just a sigh and, oh, of course, 
the erosion of trust in this public LRT system, it can't be returned. It doesn't really matter what TransEd does at this point. There's going to be a huge contingent of Edmontonians who don't believe that the train is safe. And that's a huge problem for our $1.4 to $1.8 billion public transportation project. I think you're right. I think it's a big concern about the trust of uh, of this project, but also for building future LRT and future infrastructure projects like this, right? I mean, we've, we've touched on that before, that there's a real important and significant erosion of trust there. I was kind of thinking this might open in April, just because transit lines in the past have typically opened around then. It's good timing for bus uh, reorientations and in terms of schooling and all of that kind of stuff when there's students traveling. But now I'm not so sure. We'll see when that train actually gets to completeness. But speaking of completeness, you actually wrote about the substantial completion standard, which is a new policy that the city of Edmonton is putting forward. Yeah, committee got an update this week about this. It really came up last June, and uh, I don't know that there was much reporting about it uh, at the time. But the idea here is that um, the city plan breaks the city into three key types of areas. There's redeveloping areas. These are the inner city areas, the mature neighborhoods, places that are prime for infill, for example. There's the developing areas, which are located all the way around the Anthony Hende. These are places where we've already approved neighborhoods. There's already development happening, and that they're at various you know stages of development. And then there's future growth areas, and these are the really far outside uh, those boundaries uh, locations. These are the things that we've annexed recently where there isn't growth yet. We haven't approved neighborhoods. And so this substantial completion standard is all about the city saying, we're not going to approve new neighborhoods in those future growth areas until we reach a certain percentage of completion on these developing areas. So the neighborhoods that are under construction right now, all the way around the Hende, you know, need to get to 60, 80, 90% completion in order to allow city council or, you know, developers and city council to move forward with further sprawl outside of uh, outside of those existing areas. That's sort of a long way of saying it's a growth boundary. You finish your dinner before having dessert. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. I mean, it's not so clear cut. There's different percentages for different districts. They're doing this at the district level, which is also something that is new as part of a as part of city plan. So, you've got areas like Mill Woods, which are expected to be, you know, 90% complete by the time they reach this milestone, which they're using as as 1.5 million. When we get to that population, that's when they think development in these future growth areas would be allowed. But there's other areas like Horse Hill, which would only be, you know, just 15% because there's nothing there currently. There's no development there currently, and they don't anticipate there will be that much by the time we get there. So it's just a bit of a delay of the sprawl. It's not a hard boundary. It's not saying we're not going to sprawl past this location. It's just saying we're not going to do that right now. Well, this podcast is going to sprawl out to, I don't know, 600, 900 episodes. But to get there, we got to read another ad. Well, we're part of the Alberta Podcast Network, and APN has lots of interesting shows that you can listen to, including Three Kitchens, which is a podcast about home cooking from Aaron Walker, Sarah Somasandaram, and Heather Dyer. And they're looking for some fun and interesting people to either guest on the show or guest host the show. So if you're into home cooking, and maybe that's your New Year's resolution, you might want to reach out to them. And you can find them at threekitchenspodcast at gmail.com if you're interested. And be sure to check out Three Kitchens wherever you get your podcasts. And that's all for this week, this new year, 2023. It's the first podcast of the new year, the first of many, I hope. Uh, Mac, we had a pretty contentious budget time. 
What's your prediction for this next year of city council? Are we going to see quiet, measured governance? Are we going to see tensions flare up? Is there going to be drama? Is there going to be a Netflix special made about it? What's your prediction? I think there could be material for a Netflix drama. No, I think we're definitely going to hear lots of contention this year. I don't think we have a a smooth sailing sailing year, even though we've done this four-year budget. So there's a couple of key things that I think we'll make for interesting episodes on this podcast. One, of course, is the police budget, which council didn't really deal with at budget because they agreed on a funding formula for this year only, but they've got to do something for the next three years. And so that conversation is going to pick up again very soon. And we all know all of the consternation and tension and frustration that comes along with police budget. So there's that. And then I think city plan and the implementation of city plan and the implementation of the districts and the district planning and all of those pieces, I think, are really going to come forward this year, the zoning bylaw renewal. And these are really impactful decisions for how we build our city, both new areas, but also, you know, infill and existing areas. And so I think we'll we'll definitely hear lots of uh, varying opinions about how that should be done, even though, you know, city plan does say some pretty clear direction. Yeah, and of course, we're a municipal politics podcast, but uh, there is one pretty critical thing that's probably going to be happening this spring, and that's going to be a provincial election. I think the fate of Edmonton and the fate of Edmonton City Council does hinge quite a lot on this provincial election. If Danielle Smith gets a mandate to continue what she's doing, I think City Council is going to have to take a hard look at their agenda And really start making some adaptations because I think they won't be able to deliver everything that they want to deliver. The province has shown that it is quite apt and willing to meddle in municipal politics, business, and city business. On the other hand, uh, should the NDP win the election, I think there's huge potential to accelerate a lot of our municipal plans for infrastructure, for climate, for social housing and healthcare. This could all be a make or break it thing for some of our city plans. And of course, if the Alberta party wins. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Troy, you cracked me up. Uh, I I think you're right. Of course, administration and council will say they got to work with whoever's elected. But uh, you're absolutely right. It will have a big impact. Well, that and other challenges we will cover over the upcoming year. But for now, that's it. That's all you get. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.